It has been a long, stressful process up to and including the moment that I'm standing in front of you. This has been a strange, busy week. I have been in meetings all week with lawyers. I've been in court, been in meetings with realtors. Nothing I planned to do this week went the way that I planned on it to go. I've been hours and hours on the phone trying to get this deal finalized, and we still aren't where we need to be and don't have the answers that we've prayed for and asked God for, and we're still believing for a miracle. I said, we're still believing for a miracle. This time last year, I was in this room. There was no carpet. This was a basketball court. There was no paint on the walls. These windows were not framed in. These walls were not the way they are now. They were just plain, ugly brick. And I was in here with paint all over me. And I built things and constructed things. And just from that point to this point, God's already performed miracles. And if he did it before, we're believing him to do it again. Amen? I'm not even going home after church today. We are getting in our car and driving to Beckley, West Virginia, going down to West Virginia Church of God camp meeting, where, for the very first time ever, I will be one of the speakers. Never in a million years would I have ever envisioned myself speaking at camp meeting. I never, I never thought, I, I didn't even let that cross my mind. People have told me for years, and I just didn't receive that as a possibility. I never, I never thought that I could have a platform such as that to speak to God's people. And it's through that that I come to the pulpit this morning thinking, and this is not my sermon, this is free. Thinking that I'm probably not the only one that knows what it feels like to have on one hand this tremendous blessing. And on the other hand, at the same time, I've got more stress than I have felt in a long, long time. The truth is, whether you know it or not, every person in this room is living in dual seasons. You're in two places minimum right now. You've got plenty in one area of your life and not enough in another area. You can have a lot of money, but not enough time. Where you're neglecting your family, neglecting your health. There's want. People look at you and think you're completely blessed because you've got a lot of finances, but they don't see the areas where you're lacking. You, you might have plenty of peace, but your health is in bad shape. So there's want there. You might have just got a promotion at work and everybody at work sees how blessed you are and in the meanwhile you go home and you have a relationship with your teenager that you assume is only going to end in homicide. So there's want in your life. The key, and this is not my sermon, I'm giving you this for free. The key is to understand that when you have plenty... And when you have lack, they all come from the same place. As a matter of fact, they all come from the same hand. Brother Job said it best, Shall we accept good from his hand and not also trouble? God is God and he always will be God. And it doesn't matter what season you're in, what you're facing, or what you are going through. The same God is on the throne. And I just want to encourage somebody this morning to know that you can be in greatness and in lack at the same time. And it doesn't have anything to do with God resigning his position. I am believing for a miracle. I'm also going down to preach camp meeting. I thought if I ever got to the place, and I never thought that I would be pre uh, preaching at a camp meeting, but I thought if I ever did get to a place like that, that I would just be favored and highly blessed all over my life, and there'd be nothing else on my mind except that sermon. And the truth is, I didn't even start working on that sermon until about 2 o'clock the other night. 
Because I've had so much going on. I've been in courtrooms. I've been in lawyers' offices. I've been on the phone with realtors. I got none of the meetings this week that I scheduled or wanted to schedule done because of emergency stuff keeps coming up. And I've got this in the back of my mind, and I've lost sleep over it. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, I've let myself worry than I, more than I should have or more than God's happy about. So I'm blessed and I'm stressed. So we say little catchy things sometimes like, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Uh-uh, that ain't true. Because I'm finding myself in dual seasons where I am fully both. I am fully blessed. I am honored to be preaching at Camp Midi, and I am about to lose the rest of the hair that I still have at the same time. So I just wanted to let you know this morning that you're not alone because I, I have a firm belief in my, as we was worshiping this morning, that just hit me. I'm probably not by myself in this room. There's probably some other folks in here that knows what it feels like to be blessed and stressed at the same time. Good, I'm in the right church this morning. Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to take my text from this morning. Matthew chapter 25, I'm not going to ask you to stand because I'm going to uh, extrapolate some truth from this passage this morning. I'm preaching a series titled, I'm Better Than This. This is the 13th installment of I'm Better Than This. This, this morning is going to be a, an unusual twist on passage of Scripture because this passage is typically end-time prophecy. This passage of Scripture that I'm about to share with you is typically referred to uh, as the second coming of Christ and, and, and talking about how to prepare for that. And there's a lot of preaching that could be done but what the Holy Spirit led me to is to extrapolate some truth from this passage that isn't as obvious. Are you ready? Say, say feed me, Pastor. Ah, good deal, good deal. I'm in the right place. Then the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. The bridegroom was delayed. Put a pin in that, I'll come back to it. And at midnight... A cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there not should be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins, the foolish virgins, came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say unto you, I do not know you. Now, first of all, let me get the obvious out of the way. Maybe it's not obvious to every one of you, and that's why I'm going to explain it. This passage is talking about what happens when Jesus comes back. This is end-time prophecy. And the ten virgins are divided directly in half. Five are wise, five are foolish. I'm going to dive into them just a little bit in a moment, but first let me get this prophetic unction out of the way so that you don't think that I'm just taking Scripture out of context. I know the meaning of this text. This is talking about when Jesus comes back. In this story, Jesus is the bridegroom. In this story, you and I are the virgins. Some of us are wise virgins. Some of us are not so wise. When the bridegroom comes back, we find out who's who. I'll get to that in just a minute. Put a pin in that. So what happened in this story is a Jewish wedding scenario. In a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom and his betrothed, his soon-to-be wife, they get 
They get, not like we do in this day and age in America, they get betrothed. They are going to be married, but they don't know when. So the bride-to-be and her wedding party, the virgins, they're supposed to go and stay in a house until the bridegroom comes back to get them. And then the wedding takes place. Here's the deal. They're in this house, and they don't know when he's coming. That's why the Bible said, and there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. There was a, it's a surprise. You, you're supposed to keep yourself ready to receive him so when he shows up, you don't have to grab nothing. You don't have to make preparation because the door's about to shut. There's no time to get ready. You got to stay ready. You got to be prepared because once the door is shut, you see in this story, there ain't no getting in after the door closes. So this is a story about being saved. This is a story about salvation. This is a story about now is the day of salvation. Get saved right now. Don't put this decision off because the bridegroom is coming and you don't know when. The bridegroom is on his way, and the door will be shut, and there won't be any second chances. That's what this story's about. And as we see in this story, and what, what I'm going to focus on is the difference between the foolish and the wise. My sermon title is, I'm Better Than This. So I want to know how not to be a fool. I don't want to be caught not just at the end with a shut door and locked out of heaven. I don't want to be caught today as a fool. I could take you over to the book of Proverbs and show you a great many calamities that will come into your life right here and right now. I'm not talking about missing heaven. I'm talking about you're going to stay broke. I'm talking about you're going to be in miserable relationships. I'm talking about that you won't ever have any prosperity or favor in your life. If You, you can live this life as a fool and make it to heaven, but who would want to? I don't want to be a fool. I want to be wise. So let's talk about these virgins. Uh, now that we understand the story, in a Jewish wedding, these virgins and the bride-to-be never knew when he was coming back. So they had one job. Keep oil in their lamps. Keep oil ready to go. And the Bible says here, the five foolish virgins had oil in their lamps. The five wise virgins had oil in their lamps, but they had some more to go. Now that I have now properly trained you, let's move on. Because the warning that I want to extrapolate to you in 2021, where you're living right now, is this. It is possible for you to come into your season and not have what it takes to receive your harvest. I'm talking about you have been working to plant the right seeds like we talked about last week. You have been praying. You have been fasting. You've been begging God. You've been believing for a miracle. You've been putting scriptures on your mirror. You've been putting fish on your, on your car. It, you have been doing all the things that you know to do, and you're believing God for a harvest. And how sad would it be for you to pray and beg heaven to bring a harvest to you, and when the harvest shows up, you miss it. I'm talking about you're not missing it because God don't love you. I'm not talking about you miss it because you sin. That's another sermon for another time. I'm talking about you missed it because you a fool. You're how quiet it is in this mortuary. Nobody in here wants to be calling them a fool. Good, get out of your foolishness. I'm going to help you this morning. Let's talk about all ten virgins before we break them up. All ten. There are some characteristics we see in the Scripture that all ten of them have. Number one, they were all virgins. That's important. In this story, that's important. Because had they not been virgins, they would have been disqualified. In other words, they were doing the right things. They were keeping themselves pure. They were doing what needed to be done as far as they had power over to present themselves to the bridegroom when he shows up. They were doing the right things. Tell your neighbor they were doing right. 
Uh, that's a better story than half the Bible. Half the Bible is folks doing wrong. So they were doing the right things. The second thing that we find in all ten virgins were they were all hand-selected. Mm-hmm. The bride and the bridegroom would have hand-selected these ladies. In other words, they weren't outsiders. They were part of the family. They were part of the team. They were on the right squad. They had the right connections. The third thing was that they were all dressed. Again, that's important in this story because if you're waiting for the bridegroom in a Jewish wedding, you are supposed to be dressed to receive him. They have made the right preparation as far as looking right. Anybody see where I'm going yet? They, they were on the right squad. They had the right connections. They were doing some of the right things. Oh, and I also see that they were all at the same place. COVID's over. Come back to church. You need to be in the right place. Hear me. You need to be in the right place. And, but not only, not only were they in the right place, they were hanging out with sincere folks who were doing good. I don't have time to tell you how important it is to choose your company wisely. But these ten virgins, all ten of them, were in the right place with the right folks, heading the right direction. Heading the right direction. So far, we don't know who's wise and who's foolish. They all look the same on Sunday at Promise of Victory. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not where they were at. The wise and the foolish all look the same sitting in church pews. The wise and the foolish all look the same leading small groups. The wise and the foolish all look the same singing in the praise team. The wise and the foolish all look the same when they put scripture on your Facebook. You don't know who is planting that little message in your uh, DM that says, uh, uh, the Lord wanted me to tell you. You better know whether they are wise or foolish before you receive that message. Y'all ain't going to help me this morning. It's hard to tell the difference between the wise and the foolish. The next thing I see is that all ten virgins were waiting. They weren't doing the wrong stuff. They weren't running with the wild crowds. They weren't down at the bar when he showed up. They, they, they weren't messing around someplace they shouldn't be when he showed up. They wanted to end up in the wedding. They were at the right place. And the Bible says finally that they all went to sleep. The wise and the foolish all went to sleep. Nothing wrong with going to sleep. Nothing wrong with getting rest. But it's here that their their similarities end. Because you couldn't tell which ones were wise and which ones were foolish until they woke up. Now I'm about to start giving you a bunch of truth at rapid fire succession. You ready? You couldn't tell which ones were wise and which ones were foolish until what they had been waiting on showed up. You couldn't tell which ones were wise and which ones were foolish until what they had been praying for came to pass. You couldn't tell, and this is the last time I'll say this, you couldn't tell which ones were wise and which ones were foolish until they had to wait. Because once the waiting was over, They all had to receive what they had been waiting on, and very soon it became obvious half of them were foolish. The reason I bring this to your attention this morning is because you want to live a life that is better than this. You want to live a life better than where you've been. And I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you because I ain't scared of none of you. You have handled some things in your life foolishly. Some of the decisions that have made you bow your knee to Jesus was not the devil's doing. It was not because somebody done done you wrong. The reason some of us have bowed our, uh, and laid down on our face in front of Jesus and cried ourselves to sleep at night and need a pill to go to sleep and another one to get up, the reason all of these calamities have come into some of our lives is because of stuff that we have done that we knew better than to do it, but we acted foolishly. And you didn't act foolishly on Sunday morning with the atmosphere charged and the praises going up and the word going out. No, 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 no. You had to wait a while. I'm going to preach this morning to some waiting folks because some 
some of you are in a dangerous scenario right here, right now, and I'm one of you, where you are between the yes and the amen. The Bible says that Jesus' promises are yes and amen, but the problem is in between the yes and when the amen shows up. Amen means so be it. Amen says I agree, and some of us are in between the yes when we got the promise and the amen when it shows up, and in the waiting, it will make a fool out of you if you're not careful because these virgins were waiting for the same thing but they didn't all wait the same way see how you react to challenges tell whether you are wise or foolish you will know how you are and who you are by how you respond in the moments of your challenges the Bible says that the bridegroom finally showed up. It was a surprise. They didn't know when he was coming. And when he showed up, everybody started yelling in excitement, go out to meet him. The problem is when they went out to meet him, five of them found out they'd used their oil. They planned on having enough oil to go. What they didn't plan was enough oil to wait. They use their go oil in the waiting. They had enough oil to make it to the end, but they used it in the meanwhile. They spent their go oil while they were waiting. And just about the time their promise is about to happen, just when their harvest is about to be released, they find out they don't have any oil left. This reminds me of a story in Genesis chapter 41. The Bible says in verse 17, Pharaoh told Joseph his dream. And here's what the dream. In my dream, he said, I was standing on the bank of the Nile River, and I saw seven fat, healthy cows. So we know these are Pentecostal cows. They come up out of the river, and they begin grazing at Ryan's all-you-can-eat buffet. I'm sorry, in the marsh grass. Verse 19, but then I saw, but then I, but then, say then. then look at your neighbor and say then. It always happens then. It, 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 it's, always, it's not what you see at first, it's when you study it closer, it's the then that'll get you. It, it's not always because, listen, he looks fine on the outside, but then. That job offer looks great at first, but then. I, the, the, the scenario plays out in your mind, and you see how it's all going to be a blessing to you, but, but then. He saw seven fine-looking, fat, healthy cows, but then. Then I saw seven sick-looking cows, scrawny and thin, came up after them. I've never seen such sorry-looking animals in the land of Egypt. These thin, scrawny cows ate the seven fat cows. But afterward, you wouldn't have known it, for they were still as thin and scrawny as before. And then I woke up. There's a principle that I'm going to teach you that will help save your sanity if you will listen to me this morning. It can save your marriage, it can save your job, it can save your relationships. It's found in this story of the cows. The story tells us that God is showing Joseph that there was going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of blessing that was going to be immediately followed by seven lean years. Seven years where there would not be any blessing. Seven years where food would not be plentiful. Seven years of hard times. And why he was showing Joseph the seven years of lean following the seven years of plenty was because he wanted Joseph to relay the message to Pharaoh that if you handle the plenty the right way, the hard times won't get you. The most important thing is how you handle good 
Because if you don't handle good right, bad will swallow you up. If you don't know how to handle good, I'm going to preach this morning. If you don't know how to handle good, your bad will swallow you up. So do yourself a favor. If you don't know how to handle good, don't get married. If you don't know how to handle good, don't get a paycheck. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. All we ever do is come to the house of God and ask God to bless us, ask God to move in our lives. But we don't do with what he's already given us what we're supposed to do with what he's already given us. We don't handle good correctly. And if you don't know how to handle good, your bad will swallow your good right up. Marriages don't end because they stopped being good. Marriages end because we accentuate the bad more than we ever looked at the good to start with because we don't handle good the right way. Relationships end. Families break apart. You lose your mind and fall into deep, dark places of depression because you don't know how to handle good. And so when good isn't handled properly, bad swallows it up and leaves you uh, empty. Hmm. What, what do I mean by that? Let me, let me drill down into this just a little bit. God was showing Pharaoh and, and interpreting it through Joseph that if you lose what you need when you got it, then your bad times will swallow up the good times. And if you ever want to survive a famine, you better learn how to maximize the positive while you've got it and start minimizing the negatives. Oh, notice how quiet everybody's getting now. We are living in a complaining society. I have just about swore off uh, social media altogether because all people ever want to do is complain. They complain about slow service at restaurants. My God in heaven, a year ago you was begging for restaurants to be open. You'd have been happy to have a cheeseburger through through your window as you drove past the restaurant. And now you want to complain because the service is slow. They can't find anybody to work. They're all home drawing more on unemployment than they can get by working. And you want to complain because some 16-year-old kid ain't getting your hamburger fast enough. Child of God, we got to do better than this. I can go home and make a hamburger before I will complain about some kid not doing their job right. We have gotten to the place where we don't accentuate what is good. And we marginalize the great, and we accentuate the negative. And the bad is swallowing up our good. Look at what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. There are some that are honorable and some that are dishonorable. In a great house. In a great house. In a great house, they some great stuff and some stuff that misses the mark. In a great house, can you imagine what it's like in a marginal house? In an average house? This is in a great house. He says, in a great house, Brother Timothy, son of mine, when you go into a great house, you're going to find stuff you don't like. When you go into a great house, you will find stuff that does not match your level of anticipation. And if you focus on what you don't like, it will swallow up the good, even in a great house. And can I tell a Christian sitting under the sound of my voice this morning, the devil loves to highlight the problems. The devil loves for you to start picking apart what your wife don't do, how your wife don't act, how your wife don't respond. You know why? Because he wants you to go find some honey on the side that will do what she don't do, that will respond the way she... The reason that you, ma'am, are constantly berating him because he wears his boots in the house is because the devil wants you to go and start fawning over some guy who respects you and believes in you and listens to you 
you, my husband don't listen to me. That is a that is a verbal warning coming out of your own mouth that you are minimizing the positive and accentuating the negative and you are on the borderline of failure. In a great house, there'll be things you won't like because there's gold and there's hay. There's silver and there's wood. So come to promise a victory, but please don't think you'll like everything. Any more than I'd like everything at your house. In a great house, there's stuff that'll feed you and there's stuff that you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. There's stuff in a great house that will minister to you and there's stuff that make you go, hmm. In a great house, the devil will always try to show you what's broke, what's misaligned, what's not up to your level of need. But what Paul is telling Timothy is, I want you to know what kind of house it is. It's still a great house. What he's trying to tell Timothy is, when you come into a great house, you're going to find stuff that isn't quite up to par, and you're not going to like it and agree with all of it. But remember where you're at. See, your, your wife is not perfect. Uh, I know some of y'all macho guys are like, oh, yes, mine is. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the brother beside I'm talking to the honest brothers this morning. No, your wife ain't perfect. I tried, if I married you, I tried to tell you that in premarital counseling. I tried to beat that into both your heads. Because I see you sitting there and your eyes is fluttering and you're, you're drunk on love. And I say, you're going to sober up. There's a wonderful cure for love. It's called marriage. See, marriage is not about love. Marriage is about commitment. Marriage is about getting up every single day and saying, I'm going to do this thing. <laughs> I don't, I, sometimes I feel like doing it, and sometimes I'm just going to, yeah, y'all not going to help me. My wife's sitting right here. For those of you that are, are, are new here, thank you for visiting with Promise of Victory this morning. And just so you know, this is my lovely wife sitting right here. I ain't telling something she's over in the nursery. No, marriage is not about love. Marriage is about commitment. Being a best friend to somebody is not about love. It's about commitment. I will be there. You call me, I will. I'll drop what I'm doing because I'm committed to you. Going to work. People say all the time, we turn into such a complaining society. Oh, I hate my job. Them bosses don't know how to run nothing. If I was in charge, listen to me. If you was in charge, business probably wouldn't even be there because you broke. You didn't open that business because you're broke. You don't know how to run it. You've never done it. Everybody thinks they know how to do the president's job. Everybody knows that, thinks they know how to uh, uh, manage a, a federal budget of trillions of dollars, and you bouncing checks down at the speedway. Come on, I'm better than this. You got to put, if you have to go to a, a cash machine to find out your balance, don't be putting on Facebook how they should be spending state finances. Because you don't know either. <laughs> well, the road shouldn't be paved over here. They should be paving this road because we're better than this. We turn to such a complaining society that we complain about small things and ignore huge blessings that God has poured into our lives. Paul told Timothy that you can point out every hypocrite in church. You can hunt for people that aren't what they're supposed to be. You can find, that, you can find problems with the way the preacher preaches. You can find problems with the way the pastor's wife dresses. You can find problems with whether it's too hot or too cold, the volume of the music, whether or not we sing the right kind of music. You can find problems with how the greeters greet you and how the ushers usher you. But at the end of the day, you need to recognize you were still in a great house. 
And the Bible says marriage is from God and God hates divorce. So you can point out every day how much your wife don't do, how much your husband does that gets on your last nerve, how they do this wrong and how they do that wrong. But at the end of the day, you need to recognize you live in a great house. You live in a great house because God honors commitment and marriage. And it's a great house. And you need to remember the great house because if you don't know how to handle a great house, what when you go through lean times, and hold on, honey, lean times are coming, the lean will swallow up the good. And if you agree with that, give God a hand clap in this house. Because what I have to do is refuse to let the bad eat up my good. God loves to do his best work in the worst times. It's amazing to me how what I fall apart over don't seem to phase God now. I have total, I'm just going to testify because y'all are, y'all are holy. Pray for Bishop. I'm not, I have total meltdowns in front of God. Y'all think I'm transparent up here? You ought to see me in my prayer closet. I got bubbles coming out my nose and I can't see straight for 30 minutes because I've cried till my eyes swell shut I am a mess in front of God I just empty myself out everybody says you don't ever act like you got a problem in the world that's because I've done been in a prayer closet and just emptied all of it out just I just spilled it out to God God has saw the worst of me. He has saw all my worry, all my complaining, all of the times I have a pity party, all the times I bring to him. He is my committee that I go to, but I don't go to. I used to go to God thinking he's going to pick me up. You remember how mama used to pick you up and put you on her knee? You, you, you scraped your knee. Some of y'all had loving mothers. Now, listen, some of us just had a mama that loved us. She just loved us in different ways. For instance, some of y'all had a mother that if you scraped your knee and you came running to your mama, she would pick you up and put you on her knee, and she'd pet you and kiss on your forehead and tell you, now, now, baby, it's going to be okay. You're gonna, let, me, let, me, let mommy kiss that boo-boo. And she'd put her lips down on that old bloody mess and kiss your boo-boo and... And then, she would, and then she would gently wipe it down with some water and some paper towels and bandage it properly. And now, baby, is that okay? And she'd give you some medicine, tell you to go lay down for a little while. And then some of y'all, some of y'all have mamas like Anna Mitchell. Who she'd look at it and say, oh, you won't die, you'll make it. Go rub some dirt in it. Anybody else's mama ever tell them, go rub some dirt in it? My mama would tell me, go rub some dirt in it. I'd slide into third base, skin my knee. I'd come home. She'd say, go rub some dirt in it. I said, what do you think makes this? I slid in the dirt. That's what made this. And then, God forbid, I stuck around long enough for her to actually doctor me. Because it wasn't that putting me on her knee, kissing my forehead, wiping it down. She went and got this devil spit. It come in a little glass jar. It was red because it came out of hell itself. Mercurochrome. Anybody ever heard of it? My mama would take a brush and brush that place and then put this mercurochrome on it. I would shoot out like a bottle rocket. I learned never go to the ER. Don't go home to mom. If I went home to tell my mother I was hurt, I had to be dismembered. I left an arm on the baseball field. I ain't going home to that woman. No pain I ever suffered from football, basketball, baseball, track. None of it ever hurt as bad as mom's love. And I thought when I got saved, Jesus was going to treat me like y'all's mamas did. I was going to come in there and say, this is where it hurts. And they they stabbed me in the back. And they broke my heart. And I thought he was going to bounce me on his knee and kiss me on the forehead and say, show me where it hurts, baby. But God don't even treat me like that. God has never been 
comforting to me on that level. Here's what his comfort sounds like to me. It happened, but you're still here. It hurt, but it did not maim. It injured, but it did not kill. I was with you then. I'm here now. And I didn't let it kill you before. And it will not kill you in the future. I walked you through the valley of the shadow of death. And now you can fear no evil. Because my rod and my staff are present in your life. You don't have to wonder if I care. Because if I didn't care, you wouldn't have made it this far. And yes, there's been some pain, and you're going to feel some more. Your pain season hasn't ended. But know this, the same one that brought you through the last time is going to show up on the other side, and you will never be the same again. Somebody give God a praise if you know he is a present help in time. God did his best work in good times but he does he does his best work when I'm falling apart how do I get better than this you go into the gym have you saw the commercial I don't remember what's for now some kind of medication or something and the guy gets down and does one push-up straightens his shirt he goes one and he's done would be to God it was that easy you go to the gym, you do, go down there to, to I, I watch her on Facebook sometimes. She's doing all this, and everybody is sweating through all their clothes. And, and she don't know because her back's turned to the women, but sometimes the women's making faces at her and stuff like, eh, you are a monster. You go to the gym, you get better because there's pain involved. There's stress. You're pulling out of you things that you didn't even know was in you but at the end you're better you're better than this you're better than this and I just want to minister to some of y'all who needs to learn how to focus on what's right before what's wrong swallows it up if all you can do is accentuate the negative all you can do is magnify the bad You'll miss the good when it's there. And bad is all you're left with. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 20. He says, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. Stop right there. Because you know the rest of the verse. And you want to jump into that part because it makes you shout. But listen to what Paul just said. Have you ever read that? Have you ever noticed what he said? He said, the law entered that the offense might abound. God's putting something in your life so you get more offended. God puts something in your life so you'll get more reasons to complain. More things to be upset about. He put things in your life. God did. He's the, one, he's the author of the law to offend you to show you how low down you are to show you how many times you break it so you can hold it in front of you and see how short you become the law so offense may abound he wants you to be offended why? because the second half of the verse because the more sin abounds grace much more Abounds. If I never had a problem, I wouldn't know my God could solve it. If I'd never been sick, I wouldn't know a healer. If I'd never been offended, I wouldn't know what His love felt, feels like when I go to Him and say, they hurt me, and He says, it didn't kill me. It offended you. Now let me show you my grace. Because my grace has built a 
fence around you and I let them touch you but I didn't let them steal everything I let them hurt you but I didn't let you die I let them I let them attack your marriage but I'm putting it back together because where sin abounded grace did much more abound can I show you how Joseph handled this situation remember he interpreted the dream and and, 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 he, and he taught Pharaoh a lesson. He says, when the good times come, you better hold on to some. You better stash some of it away because you're going to need the good when the bad shows up. If anybody knows what that feels like, it's Joseph. I mean, Joseph was falsely accused. He put, spent 12 years in prison for something he didn't do. He was forsaken and abandoned. And everybody who promised to help him not only betrayed him, but just complete, some of them just completely forgot him. You remember that, Joseph? And the Bible says, at the end of his story, his brothers, the ones who threw him in the pit, the ones who sold him into slavery, the ones who went home and told his daddy he was dead, them brothers were on their knees in front of Joseph. And he recognized them, but they didn't know he was Joseph. And he had the chance. He has the power. He's got the authority. He can crush them. These are the people that wounded me. These are the people that hurt me. These are the people who did me wrong and they are on their knees begging me for help. And they don't even know it's me. I can have them arrested. I can have them put in jail. I can have my revenge. I can have them killed. I'm the second most powerful man in all the world. I can do with them what I want to do with them. In my dream I had when I was a young man, the thing that started all this, was I had a dream they were bowing in front of me and it made them so jealous they tried to kill me. They sold me into slavery because I had a dream that this day was coming. And now it's here. Somebody can pay. You know what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 9? And Joseph remembered the dream he had dreamed about them he remembered the dream I would have remembered the betrayal I would have remembered the lies they told on me I would have remembered the fact that I spent 12 years in prison for something I didn't do I would have remembered the baker and the butler who forsook me and forgot about me and didn't help me after they said they would but he refused to let his bad eat up his good. Joseph was able to say, you know what? These guys did me wrong. But look who's on their knees. And look who's standing with power and authority. Some of us would have let our bad come over and spoil our good, but Joseph was wise enough to realize God showed me this day was coming, and he didn't show it to me so I would take out vengeance. He showed it to me so grace could abound and I could show mercy. Because I refuse to allow what they did to me to ruin who I am right now. Because who I am is who God created me to be. He created me to be an overcomer. He created me to be uh, someone that witnesses for Him. He created me to be an ambassador for the kingdom. And if I let my bad eat up my good, I'm ruining my marriage. I'm ruining my witness. I'm not using what God's given me for His glory. I'm sitting down on my gifts and my talents. I'm using them for evil instead of good. And grace is not abounding in my life. Somebody under the sound of my voice needs to know this morning that what God has put down on the inside of you is more important than what they did to you. You need to learn how to let it go. You have a decision to make every day. Every day is a gift to you that is not promised. And every day you have a decision to make whether you're going to let the bad eat up the good. Pastor, you don't know what they did to me. No, but you're still here. You're alive. There's a whole obituary column full of folks that would love to trade places. You're still alive. You have a destiny. You're sitting in here this morning. Somebody loves you. 
Why are you focused on the one who walked out when there's 20 other? You're focusing on the last month of your life, which has been a struggle. What about the last 10 years where God was just multiplying blessing? You stood up in church and you said, God's been good to me. He gave me a job. He gave me this. He gave me that. And now because you had one bad season, you're going to forget about all the good God did? Is God not still good? Every day you have a decision to make going to go home and sleep in a bed tonight there's folks under bridges they'd love your bills that you complain about paying you who are saved have the Holy Spirit living inside of you so don't let the bad stuff that happens to you eat up all the good that the Holy Spirit's doing in you God's bringing some stuff your way if you'll open your eyes to see it we sometimes focus on the one bad thing and the bad eats up the good. Can I tell you something? If you're ever bitten by a poisonous snake, you got two choices. You can chase the snake, try to catch it and make it pay for biting you. And in the end, you're going to speed up your own death. Or you can let God handle the snake. And you can seek the healer. You can seek the healer. Because what the snake did to you, no harm shall come upon those who are walking with the Lord. So I'm about to speak to some very specific folks in this room. Because some of you are sitting here under the sound of my voice. And you have let your bad eat up your good. You've been holding on to some hurts. People have let you down. Maybe you came here this morning. You know you wasn't raised right. You was abused and neglected. Maybe you've been divorced. But if you look over at them beautiful children, that ought to help you let it go. There's, there's beautiful things in a good house. And there's some stuff that you don't really want to look at too. But you can't ever forget that you're in a great house. You might be surrounded this morning by ashes and brokenness and confusion and despair. But you are not what you are surrounded by. What you're surrounded by doesn't have to get inside of you. So if you've been heading the wrong way, the devil will try to convince you that you've went too far, that what they did to you is too much for you to handle, and you just need to let your bad eat up your good because woe is me, nothing good. Nobody ever calls, nobody cares. But who told you that your life wasn't ever going to get better? Who told you you weren't going to make it out of this season? Was that the Lord or was that somebody else? Because the devil is a liar. He's the father of them, and there's no truth in him. He can't tell the truth. So when he says you can't, you can. When he says you won't, that ought to inspire you to say, oh, yes, I will. You don't challenge the wrong believer, devil. You listen to me. The devil is a lie, and when he comes to you, spout lies to you, and tells you you're going to die, that ought to give you a surety to square your shoulders and say, well, I guess I'm living another 50 years because the devil can't tell the truth. He tells you that marriage is over. You ain't got to listen to him. In the Bible days, can you put that picture up for me? In the Bible days, oil was kept in a clay container looked a lot like this when these ten virgins came out they would have been holding these you put oil through this hole and you light it through this hole ten virgins had oil Five of them had oil to spare. Do you know when we find out who the fool is? 
when we light the oil. When the oil gets set on fire. See, standing outside of this, you can't see how much oil's in there. Before you light the flame, you don't know whether there's any oil at all until heat is applied to the vessel. You don't know what's inside or if it's empty. If it's full, it'll glow, it'll burn, it'll put out heat, it'll illuminate a room, it'll shine in the darkness. If there's oil, when you put heat to it, baby, it's, it's time to shine. But if it's empty and the heat is applied, you know immediately who used all their oil and are looking foolish. Some of y'all sitting here right now under the sound of my voice and your, your marriage is without oil. I want you to stand to your feet. Some of you in this room, you go to work every single day dreading and hate, hating life and your career has run out of oil. I want you to stand to your feet. Listen, I ain't playing. I, I want you to, I, every person in this room, your relationship with God, you don't really feel saved most of the time. You don't have joy. I want you to stand to your feet. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I, I'm not asking you to let you want me to start pointing you out. I know who you are. If you're in this room, if you're in this room and you're out of oil, You don't know if you can carry on. Maybe you came to church today and this is your last ditch effort. I'm at the end of my rope. I want you to stand to your feet. I want every person who needs refilled with their oil to stand to their feet. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. Maybe you have been walking with God, but you know your walk with God could be stronger. You pray and you don't feel like your prayers gets through the ceiling. You, you ask God for stuff and things don't show up. And Quite, quite honestly, you know you're saved, but you just don't feel a relationship with God. You need your oil refill. Every person standing, I want you to stay right where you are. If you're here and you're a Stephen minister, if you're a prayer team warrior, if you're on staff, I want you to migrate in to an area where these people are standing. If you're a believer and you're sitting in a pew, I want you to stretch your hands towards somebody that's close by you. And I want you to begin to ask God to feel their oil. You can't tell how empty you are until heat is applied. Some of you You've been going through it. The heat has been turned up, and you realized how empty you really were. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I prophesy. I speak life over you right now. Fill them, Lord. Fill them, Lord. Fill them, Lord. In the name of Jesus, right now, I'm speaking over marriages that have run out of oil, that are empty that do not know uh, how long they're going to survive. You've been considering, I'm, I'm, I'm prophesying to somebody, I feel it in my spirit. You have been considering finding an excuse to get out of this. I, I rebuke that lying spirit right now in the name of Jesus. You know better, you know better. You've been trying to, to underhandedly come up with a way. Now, if I say that he did this, if I tell him that she did that, I can make an excuse. I, I rebuke that lying spirit right now in the name of Jesus. Some of you came into this church this morning and you know you're saved, but you haven't felt God move in your life for a while. I'm commanding angels right now to take charge over every hindering spirit that has been causing you to feel distant from God. And Holy Ghost, I'm asking 
asking you to fill their vessels. In the name of Christ Jesus, my Lord, I'm praying right now that you would fill them up to full and overflowing. Some of them are wounded. God, bind up their wounds with the balm of Gilead. Heal them from the inside to the outside. Let their spirit become refreshed and revived and renewed. God, in the name of Jesus, move in this church like you haven't done in their lives in a long, long time. Draw them to full capacity. Let their vessel run out. Oh God, so when the heat is applied, they will illuminate their space. They will heat those that are cold. And everything that is around them will feel the burn of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, fill them to full. And oh, My God, my God, my God, my God, my God. The only way you can know how much oil you have is when the heat is applied. Fill our cup, Lord. In the name of Jesus, from the balcony to the front, from the left to the right, east, south, north, and west, fill them, God. Don't let anybody leave here empty. I won't be Holy Ghost. Yeah, My God, my God, my God.